Welcome to episode 81 of the 905er podcast. I'm Roland Tanner. I am Joel McLeod. The biggest challenge we'll face over the next half century or so is likely to revolve around climate change. Science in many cases has been established for decades now, and we're seeing the changes right here in the 905 region. There's 12% more precipitation in our region now than there was half a century ago, and temperatures have increased an average of 1.5 degrees. Now that might not sound like much, but those small averages reflect massive global changes. More weather extremes, more flooding, just as we saw it here in Halton in 2015. The speed with which change is happening is extremely rapid compared with any other time in global history. What used to happen over millennia is happening now in decades. For the last 2,000 years, temperatures remained largely stable, but in fact dropping gradually. Then the graph literally did a U-turn and started rising quickly, exactly at the point that industrialization took place and humans started burning carbon-based fossil fuels in huge quantities. So we need to be prepared and we need to be taking serious action now for what climate change is going to bring. So it was very disappointing last week to learn of a sudden about-face by Milton Council on the issue of Highway 413. The various councils across Halton Region had up until now appeared to be making the right noises when it came to major environmental issues and had been united in opposition to Highway 413. But in what was expected to be a routine vote, all of a sudden Milton's council reversed course and voted down a motion to reaffirm the council's opposition to the highway. This is the highway, in case anybody has forgotten, that multiple studies have said is not needed uh, and is, will be a disastrous for the environment. So what changed? And how can a council that was willing to declare a climate emergency in 2015 now vote in favour of yet another highway to join the three major expressways that already go through or around the municipality? To answer these and many other questions about how Halton and the 905 needs to be addressing these climate challenges and the changing work patterns we may be able to have post-COVID, we were joined this week by Lisa Kohler, Executive Director of Halton Environmental Network and Halton Climate Collective. Lisa has been working in the environmental not-for-profit sector for over 20 years and has been internationally recognised for her leadership in inspiring climate change initiatives. She is the orchestrator of Halton Climate Collective, a dedicated team of environmental leaders from across the region, working in both municipal government, provincial agencies and environmental advocacy groups. Lisa was kind enough to give up time on her weekend to speak to us, and what followed was a fascinating conversation that you won't want to miss. Welcome, Lisa Kohler, to uh, the 905 podcast. So, Lisa, you're uh, the executive director of Halton Environmental Network and also work with uh, Halton Climate Connection. I thought, I mean, the best way to start off is to, to describe exactly what those two organizations are and the work that they do within um, Halton Region for for those people such as myself who are, are sadly ignorant uh, about your work and, and would really like to learn. Well, thank you, Joel and Roland, for having me this morning. Uh, I appreciate your time and uh, having the opportunity to discuss uh, the Halton Environmental Network and the Halton Climate Collective. So the Halton Environmental Network is a nonprofit organization that's been operating in the community of Halton since 2004. We like to say we educate, engage, partner, and act. Um, we have a series of uh, programs and um, initiatives that support local climate mitigation and adaptation for climate change. 
So all of our programs, whether that's our halt food program, working in community gardens, uh, you know, supporting local grown food and uh, animating people's interest in that, uh, or if it's through our Greening Sacred Spaces programs where we work with faith-based communities on adaptation and mitigation work on property. We also have our Halt and Green Screens program, our Oakville Ready program, <laughs> and we are the backbone agency of the Halton Climate Collective. And the Halton Climate Collective is a collective uh, entity um, that has representatives and leaders from uh, the region of Halton, the town of Oakville, the city of Burlington, the town of Halton Hills, the town of Milton, Conservation Halton, the University of Waterloo, Sheridan College, the Halton District School Board, and the Halton Catholic District School Board. Collectively, we come together and we work on transforming Halton into a low-carbon, climate-resilient community. Uh, just uh, so our listeners have, have an understanding, where, where does your funding come from? Are you, are you funded through tax the taxpayer or are you funded through charity, nonprofit donations? Where, where, where's your funding uh, coming from? Thanks, Joel. Great question. Um, so we actually receive a lot of our funding. I would say 90% of our funding is actually through grants. So we apply for a series of grants through many different agencies, and that's how our work is funded. Um, so currently we have funds with the Ontario Trillium Foundation, uh, through the Investment Readiness Program, through the Oakville Community Foundation. Um, and then we work on other grants, animating other work with other entities, uh, and that's how we receive funding. We do have a memo of understanding currently with the town of Halton Hills, uh, and we do specific work with the town of Halton Hills on their um, low carbon transition strategy um, and their climate resiliency strategy. Um, so we do have an MOU with, with that organization, as well as we are working with the region of Halton on a new MOU as well to drive some more action locally for our community. To uh, give give a few examples of some of the uh, work you've done uh, as the Halton Environmental Network. You, you mentioned green screens and, and local food. Uh, again, uh, for someone who should probably know but doesn't, what's a green screen? <laughs> Other than those things that you do when you're making a film. <laughs> uh, a great question, Roland. Um, so Halton Green Screens uh, is one of our programs. Um, it's how uh, we educate and inform an engaged community through showing uh, environmental documentaries. Um, so we used to okay. work with film.ca and others actually in community where we could all gather <laughs> in person. Mm -hmm. um, and we would watch the documentary and then we'd have a local speaker come in and kind of ground it in our own community. Um, obviously, since the pandemic, we've had to switch and we do offerings now virtually. Uh, we actually have an event coming up with Otha, the um, that's the uh, Oakville Film Festival. Um, and it's called First We Eat. Uh, it's around... Um, uh, an individual that lives uh, up in the far north in the Arctic. And it's all about her family actually uh, only producing their own food and eating their own food on their land in the in the Arctic. So uh, we partner with AFA, we partnered with um, other organizations such as Burlington Green, Oakville Green, GASP, etc., um, the CFUWs, and we've had movie nights as well. So it uh, just depends on, um, on how we can animate it, but we've had many virtual screenings now, and we partner with numerous organizations just to spread the word on, uh, on uh, in, to really, not to spread the word, I would say to inspire uh, individuals to uh, to act locally. And, and in terms of your relationship with sort of municipal government, I guess you're kind of arm's length, you're you're able to be fairly independent in, uh, of them, or uh, are, are you sort of, cons uh, I'm trying to think of the right word, arm's length, but still there's a connection where 
you're not 100% independent as say Burlington Green might be. Is that fair to say? No, I would say we are. We have our own board of directors. Uh, we have our own mission mandate uh, that we operate under. Um, so we are our own entity, but we do partner and we authentically partner. And part of being a good partner is to listen uh, and, to, and to work together. Um, Hen is not interested in, um, uh, you know, really being um, siloed. We're really interested in having that authentic partnership, listening and looking for the best ways to really embrace and then transform our community. And um, so we are our own organization. Uh, we do delegations when when we feel we need to. We have very authentic conversations uh, with our partners and our municipalities. Um, and that's really how we drive things forward. So we are our own organization. But like I say, you know, we, we really do try to bring everybody to the table, have those conversations that are fruitful so that we can really embed change. On that note about, you know, working with uh, municipalities uh, to to make the region more environmentally uh, sustainable, uh, I, I think I would like to take the conversation towards uh, the town of Milton um, because they were in the news recently. Um, Milton has kind of turned into a focal point within the region of kind, you know, the I want to say the crossroads between, you know, environmental stewardship and, Economic progress, if you want, I guess those are the best two terms to to put. It. Most of what I'm talking about is something that our, our listeners are aware of is the Highway 413. We've had we've t- spoken about this on numerous episodes, and we we also presented at the Community Climate Peel Community Climate Council on on this topic uh, a few months ago. The town of the town of Milton kind of did an about face, or or definitely diverged from the region. On Highway 413, and when I'm talking, if, if nobody's aware, here's a, here's some background. So the region came out and voted to oppose Highway 413. They sent a message clearly: they do not want it going through the region. People thought that was the end of the end of the story until a councillor at the town of Milton put forward another motion, which he thought was just going to be kind of a fluff reinforcement of that motion, but from the town of Milton and the town of Milton basically said, no, we're, we're not going to endorse that. We're pretty much going to take the opposite stance, including uh, Mayor Gord Krantz, who came out and said, basically that they, they want to reconsider the Highway 413. They think it might, it might be a good idea. Uh, Lisa, you know, what, what do you take away from that? What, what's, what's the, um, you know, what's the Halton Environmental Network stance on this kind of about face of, the, of that policy? Thanks, Joel. So um, just one thing I want to touch upon is when you when you're speaking about the economy and the environment, in in actuality, I feel that they go hand in hand, you know, we can't have a prosperous environment unless we have a prosperous economy, vice versa. Um, So I think that that's something that again, at hand, at hand, we try to elevate that conversation. Um, you know, a thriving environment creates a thriving economy. Um, When it comes to the 413, um, to us, it's really not a complex issue at all. Uh, it's an issue that uh, really is quite closed, uh, closed shut. Um, so as we know, the federal government is doing an environmental assessment on the 413. Um, you know, it's $6 billion worth of taxpayer dollars. Um, and to us, that doesn't make sense for infrastructure. What we could do with $6 billion, how we could create climate resiliency, how we could mitigate uh, our impacts of climate change would be significant for our community. So in fact, pushing forward a 413 where, we're, where we would be uh, going over uh, certain lands, wetlands and other uh, sensitive and ecologically sensitive um, uh, 
areas, that's really not in anyone's best interest. As well as it's just a few kilometers uh, uh, from the 407, an underutilized highway. So instead of building yet another infrastructure that would pave over wetlands, that would have ecological uh, challenges to our community, including uh, additional greenhouse gas emissions with all those additional vehicles on the road, it just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. So we are completely opposed to the 413. Um, you know, we were saddened to hear that Milton Council did do an about face. But, you know, I, I think, um, again, this is in the hands of the federal government. And uh, hopefully after their environmental assessment is conducted, um, it will be mute and uh, we can move on as a community without the 413. What What does it say to you? I mean, because the, the idea was... I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think off the top of my head. All the the municipal uh, regional councils that came out in a, in opposition to the the 413 uh, highway. So you had Halton, Peel, both coming out. And I, I, I'm kind of curious, like why 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 is it that Milton felt that they had to tour about face? You know, like we hear like, the oh they saw new information, and I'm thinking what what new information has come to light? Everything has been on the table so far. Like I there's, I, I don't know of any new studies or new no new new piece of information that have really changed the dynamic of this conversation. Or do you know of something that that we're not aware of? I don't, Joel. So uh, you know, expert uh, subject matter experts have been looking into the four one three for quite some time now. All that research has been vetted. It has been gone through. It it proves that the four one three isn't valid uh, at all. Uh, you know, it should be as I say. Uh, we should really close that file and move on and uh, invest those $6 billion in infrastructure that does have positive outcomes for our community. So I'm not really sure what the impetus was for the the town of Milton uh, and, and the councillors. You know, it'd be a great question for maybe you to ask to one of them, um, because we certainly don't see that. Uh, we don't see that there is a, an emergent need to readdress that uh, that issue. Um, and like you say, the regional council had, uh, had very much voted against the 413, um, as had many other other uh, municipal um, uh, partners and such. So really, we don't see any benefit in our community for the 413. My understanding was, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the, the regional vote on this against the 413 was pretty much unanimous, or, or there wasn't any particular group of councillors who were going a different direction from anybody else. Is that correct? That's my understanding as well, Roland. I mean, we've been over the, the question of the 413 on this podcast before, certainly, and and you know, you know, when you say it's been, this has been looked at for some time. I mean, you're not kidding. I mean, we're talking almost decades. It's been looked at uh, way back into the previous government, and the previous government came to the conclusion that it, it wasn't justified. Is this simply a matter of uh, some councillors, perhaps, who are looking at things in kind of a 1980s, 1990s perspective, rather than a? Well, I keep on keep talking about. You know, maybe we can move towards a kind of post-commuter world the milton is thinking we're a commuter city people who live in milton don't want to aren't going to be working in milton quite often they're going to be going to someone else to work when we're talking about climate being um carbon reduction you know it has to come back to cars obviously shouldn't our objective really be to radically realign the way we 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 work to reduce those trips basically ah you know absolutely so um you know i i uh, you know, I can't speak for the Milton Council. I can't speak to why they had an about face and why they're pushing this forward or advancing it. But, um, you know, it, it is quite clear the 413 would have adverse effects on our climate. Um, it would increase our greenhouse gas emissions. It would destroy ecologically sensitive areas of land. Um, there is no benefit uh, to it whatsoever. So, um, 
you know, when we're talking about climate action, really, it's looking at it holistically. And the 413 doesn't do that, as you mentioned. So really, it's about getting people out of cars and create creating complete communities where we're looking at other methods and ways to travel, as well as I really feel like we do need to put a different lens on on uh, on our current uh, our current environment. And that is around COVID. So we know with COVID um, that many people have been working from home, if not the majority of us. We know we, now we can work from home. We know we don't need to get in our cars. We know we don't we don't need to travel into Toronto. Um, we know that we can actually stay at home and and prosper and do what we need to do. And I think that that's something that you know <clears throat> COVID has been horrific. Uh, it's been catastrophic for our local community. But I I you know I'd be ra- I'd, I would be saddened to think that we can't take some of the learnings that we've had from COVID and create a new path forward. And that is, you know, looking at the complexities of COVID and looking at the complexity of climate, there's a lot of lessons that we've learned. And I think now we need to start embedding some of those lessons into current policies to advance things forward. It's funny that you mentioned that because that's something actually, you know, Roland and I have talked about on this podcast and offline numerous times that it's, the, the pandemic seems to be uh, kind of one of those points in history that we're definitely going to have like a before and after. And we, we, we've talked about this in terms of transportation, like the commuter aspect of the 905 region. But there's also, you know, the, it goes more beyond that. I mean, we've, we've also talked about the, the housing shortage in this region, the, the runaway housing prices because of just supply and demand economics. We just don't have, have that. But the idea of, well, if you're able to free up all this office space, and provide incentives for landlords to convert those office spaces into, you know, condos or or apartments or or whatever have you. You know, it, it, it's it's a be- it's a benefit because we have less, you know, in theory, more demand on the market. Housing prices can start to come. I don't know about coming down, but at least regulate a bit more. And as you said, we aren't commuting. We're not spending two hours, three hours commuting back and forth from Toronto to our homes here in here in uh, the nine hundred five. And I'm 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 finding I'm interested I'm surprised to see you know, bring it back to the town of Milton town council kind of about face on this that there's there just seems to be kind of that lack of vision that lack of thinking of what what happens once we all have our second dose of vaccine right it's this notion of oh everything's just going to go right back to the way it was before and I'm thinking I kind of don't want want it to <laughs> I'm not, there's some things about before COVID that I'm not looking forward to you know long commutes in my car is is one of them. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think as a society, you know, learning um, from challenges that are presented with you mm-hmm. always has fruitful outcomes. So, uh, you know, I agree with you, Joel. You know, I don't want to go back to business as normal. I want to go back to business as better. And uh, and I think that future uh, is exciting, to be honest with you. But it, I think we do need to be um, aware and we need to be mindful of, of that path forward and how it could look. And I think engaging our community and our citizens in you know, what, what were some of the benefits, you know, absolutely address the challenges, but look at the opportunities. Currently, I don't know how much we're really looking at that. And uh, I, I think that that has great potential. And, you know, we're really lucky to live in Halton. We have really bright people that live here. I, I have the fortune to talk to many of them every day. And I think a path forward for Halton is, is absolutely exciting if we can put proper policies in place and we all want to build back better. Now, moving on to, to a, in many ways, a, a related subject, um, another controversial subject, again, connected with, with transportation, ultimately, transportation of goods rather than people, is the, uh, the story of uh, Milton Rail Hub, which has certainly been a, a very hot topic in, in Milton itself. 
And, and again, it was also something that the, the region has been very clearly opposed to. And uh, I believe you have also uh, been on the record kind of uh, opposing the hub. I guess, first of all, let's speak about the hub and, and, and what it is and where, where it is and what, what the intentions are. Um, and I guess the question that leads on from that is if we are trying to get away from cars and trucks um, and, and have efficient transportation, isn't a rail hub actually kind of the environmental thing to do? Um, we're just being joined by Joel's dog here, which is uh, always a welcome guest. Actually, I think it's the first time he's been a guest on the podcast. But <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, Yeah, Roland, great question. And you've kind of hit this one on the head. You know, um, the intermodal rail hub, it, it's complex. You know, I, I, I'm the first one to say intermodal hubs. Uh, there's benefits uh, to uh, to them 100%. Um, you know, the issue is complex because it will reduce our, our greenhouse gas emissions as a country. Um, so, and that's a benefit. We want that, right? Um, you know, moving things on rail instead of a diesel truck, uh, there wouldn't be an environmentalist that, that didn't agree that that's the right, mm -hmm. the right path forward. Mm -hmm. um, but we do oppose the, the CN Intermodal uh, Rail Hub. And that's for a very, um, it, it, it's just in the wrong location. I can't say it enough. Um, you know, when you look at the environment, you have to look at it as a system, as a whole. You can't look at it. You can't parcel one section away from the other. And um, the intermodal rail hub, the location that it's at, is incredibly detrimental to our community. Uh, the health impacts alone uh, should be reason for all of us to stand up uh, in opposition to it. Um, so again, really, you know, we're looking at um, a hub that will run seven days a week, 365 days a year. Over uh, 800 trip, uh, sorry, 800 trucks. So that's 1,600 trips per day, every single day. That's spewing particulate matter, and we're talking about uh, a PM of uh, roughly about 2.5 uh, is what we're looking at. Um, and that pollution, that that particulate matter, uh, will cause significant health impacts um, to some of our most vulnerable populations: children, uh, seniors, people with COPD, asthma, etc. Um, that hub location currently is is going to be in our community that will that's surrounded by over 12 schools a hospital two long-term care residents like it, it's just to, to us it's a no-brainer it's it's the wrong location uh, again I think if you look at this system as a whole um, you know there are better places to put uh, intermodal system uh, where it currently the current location is not beneficial for our environment or the health and safety and well-being of our community. Um, I, I, I want to play a bit of devil's advocate here, uh, most because I know that CN. My understanding of the CN Rail Hub that the CN uh, bought the property that is proposed for this hub some time ago. We're talking decades ago. Uh, at the time that they purchased it, it was just land. It, it was it was just people thought it was just land land literally in the middle of nowhere. Over time, the city of the town, sorry, the town of Milton has allowed its borders to basically encroach, encroach up onto the onto this property. They are now the neighborhoods are, are bordering this property uh, line. I'm guess I'm, I'm kind of puzzled by this case because the town of Milton. It's not as if they said, "Oh, we had no idea that this was going to be here." Like the, the CN is surprising us with this rail hub. They've known for decades that C and CN bought it with its dated purpose of one day we might want to build. A hub here. We might want to put tracks down here. 
This is why we're purchasing this land now. For the town of Milton to kind of come out and say, oh, you know, it's going to be harmful. Like you allowed the the municipality built up to that. You could have you could have zoned it for industrial development. You could have put warehouses and 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 manufacture manufacturing jobs there. Instead, you know, you said you want schools and, and housing. What are CN's options now? Because CNN, it's not like CN CN was being I thought CN, it's my understanding is CN has been pretty transparent on their intentions for this land for a number of years. Just do you have any comments on, on that kind of analysis? A couple. So, you know, I'm kind of one of those people that look at shoulda, coulda, woulda. Um, And uh, to be honest with you, you know, the cards have been dealt. This is where we're at. Our community has grown by this. We, we, you know, we have a regional official plan. We have to comply with it. It comes from the province, uh, full stop. So, you know, when we're told we have to grow by X amount, uh, our communities have to look like this, we have to comply with it. We don't have a choice. So, you know, again, you know, uh, CN, right intentions with an intermodal hub. Good decision. Excellent decision. We need intermodal hubs throughout Canada, but it's not good in our community in this current location. It's a fluid system. Things have changed. It's evolved. Let's look at what we have now. What we have is 12 schools. I, you know, I don't want a child in Milton getting asthma or having a significant health impact that causes cognitive delays because of the pollutants in the air. Like, that's just the bottom line here. We're talking about health and well being, full stop. And I think any company that has a corporate um, sustainable responsibility to our community would have to look at that and say, you know, it, it's egregious, let alone the seniors. Like seniors, their health impact, COPD, it afflicts more seniors than many illnesses. Um, I, I just feel like really, let's just look at the situation in its current state. And the situation in current state is the CN Intermodal Rail Hub in its current location is adverse for a community of Halton. We need to stop it. We need to move on. We need to look at a better location, full stop. That's it. You know, are there things that we could do to green a, a intermodal um, a transportation hub? 100%. Um, you know, could we have electric trucks instead of diesel trucks at the location? Could we be putting in EV chargers for diesels? Maybe. Could we be looking at sequestration values? Could we be looking at scrubbers? Could we be look, could, could, could? Like, there's lots of things we could do to make it greener but at the at the in its current state absolutely 100% bad location bad time let's move on um, you know lick our wounds let's find another location let's get on with it like Joel, extent, I mean just to yeah. uh, uh, sorry sorry I didn't mean to yes. uh, interrupt you there uh, just to give the listeners a little bit of history of this I mean this as long as Gord Krantz has been uh, mayor of Milton this is kind of this is actually the first thing he did as a young youngster entering politics <laughs> was fight the CN Rail Hub back in around the 2000s. Actually, I think he was he'd already been in politics a long time by then. So it's kind of it, it went away and it's come back again now. I, I guess the the million dollar question really is probably quite literally million dollars or many million dollar questions is if not Milton, then where? Because the unfortunate the unfortunate point of a of a of a rail hub is it has to be pretty near people i mean obviously you don't on nobody wants this on their doorstep but it has to be near enough to people that it that it can do its job which is to get uh, goods from rail onto into businesses um so so wh- where else do you think could it go it's a great question roland and you know I, I again i think together we have solutions i think we're creative as a community i think we could look at this and evolve it I don't think there's anything stopping us from doing that. So again, I, I really wish that, um, you know, 
as a community collectively, we could come together, we could look at a solution that would support a healthy environment and community well-being and health and safety. But in order to do that, we all need to acknowledge that the current state and the where it currently is located is the wrong choice. And then really, we have to go through a process of looking for another location. And again, embedding maybe something a little bit more um, sustainable and resilient is, is, an, is a path forward. Again, you know, we do know that diesel trucks are being transformed. We know many companies down south have been purchasing electric trucks and getting rid of diesel. You know, why can't that be part of our conversation? Why can't Halton lead that? Why can't we put in a charging mm-hmm. station for, for trucks and we start doing that at that location? What's stopping us? You know, again, I, there is workarounds here, but it's going to take energy, effort and work to get there. And it's not going to be easy. And it's going to cost millions of dollars more to transform it. But like I said, you know, the bottom line is currently in its current um, iteration, this just doesn't work. And uh, I'm not going to say this location would be better, Roland, because frankly, it, you know, it, it's holistic. We have to look at the system as a whole. We're not doing that currently. Should you, You've added a point that, yeah, that I, I hadn't properly considered before is, is that, as usual, we're assuming this is the only way something can be, that, that trucks are big and dirty and they, they spew diesel. The, whatever they're carrying can be spraying around in every direction as well. And, you know, it, these are big, heavy industries and it's difficult to not have a degree of impact. Yeah, I mean, that, that that's, that's certainly a point that I will admit hadn't occurred to me before in a lot of ways. So it will be interesting to see to see how this goes. Moving on to to a, a related subject, well, it's kind of related, kind of not related, but it, actually, it does it does tie into this story quite nicely, and that is that the the region of Halton is now going into its regional official plan review place process. It seems like yesterday that they did the previous one. <laughs> I haven't been in Canada that long, and I remember that whole uh, thing. And there's been quite a, I mean I mean it's, it's a one of the things we noticed and one of the things we're trying to overcome as this podcast is the lack of attention that some really important regional issues get that although the regional official plan is a big deal it's not the kind of big deal that it tends to be at a municipal level and I'm not entirely sure why that is because because uh, well perhaps you could explain to people what a regional official plan is how that interacts with the other levels of government and why it's really important that we get it right. Thanks, Roland. Uh, I'm not an expert, uh, you know, <laughs> in regional <laughs> official plans, but I understand the function and the form of them. And that's essentially uh, the province comes out with uh, a, a growth plan and uh, that gets uh, sent down to the municipalities. The municipalities have to grow uh, within the mandated uh, plan that has been provided by the province. Um, so currently, uh, there is a projection for the community of Halton. Uh, we do have to increase our population as well as uh, our, our uh, places to work. Um, so that is uh, currently the work of the region. They have to now create a regional official plan that complies with the numbers set forth by the province of Ontario. So the regional official plan will ch- will tell us where we grow, how we grow, and, and what our community will look like in 20 to 30 years from now. In my mind, this is the most important and urgent issue that we have in the community of Halton, full stop. We need citizens to get involved, to look at the regional official plan, um, to read the different scenarios and to determine what scenario they want for our community. You know, this is about our kids. This is about our future. This is about the landscape of our community. Yeah, Joel. Um, I, 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 
something that we've we've talked about is just the the contrast between like kind of a myopic vision of our cities. Like too too often, you know, we hear we've been hearing in in definitely in Burlington, in Hamilton, uh, as well as Peel, Mississauga, Brampton. You know, we, we hear about this. Oh, we don't want high rise. We don't want to look like Toronto. We don't. You know, how many levels off a, a high rise should we not have? And that seems to be the discussion that people have in mind when we talk about development in the in the region what we've discussed so far the the previous few topics we're talking about i think a more grander vision of development within the region because again going back to the point that you made previously about trying to to partner environmental sustainability with economic progress we need to start considering that we've also i touched upon earlier the need for more affordable housing you know they, they these I, I find that when we have these discussions we have them in silos, right? Housing is one thing, environment's another, the economy's another. And kind of one of the reasons why Roland and I put this together is that we want to start tearing down those silos. The, these aren't, what you, you can't fix one uh, housing, uh, you can't build more houses and say, well, we've solved the housing problem. No, you've also probably displaced possible jobs. You know, that could have, that's land that could have been developed for, for economic development or, you know, say, oh, we're going to put in a highway to promote economic change will know that now you're tearing up viable farmland uh and the whatnot um what 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 is you, i'm going to give you the, the the open table here to kind of say like what what's halton environment network's kind of ideal solution to this ideal vision of what would you like to see halton and i guess you know let's let's broaden up the entire 905 region how would you like to see us progress over the next five ten years Thanks, Joel. Wow, great question. Uh, one that I'm loving to answer. <laughs> you have 30 um, seconds, go. Okay. Um, <laughs> there's two things really, like, to me, it's succinct, it's um, it, it's cohesive, and that is, uh, we need two things. We need harder urban boundaries, full stop, done, and we need green development standards, full stop, done. We get those two things on the books. Boy, oh boy, are we talking about a resilient and climate-ready community. That's what we need. That's what we need to drive forward. That's what we should be doing as a community. Again, I love what you're talking about silos because, you know, a healthy, prosperous economy equals a healthy, prosperous environment equals a complete community for all residents. It's not siloed at all. In fact, it's, it's cohesive. The only way it will work is when all of those spheres come together into one circle, and that's a complete community. So again, you know, we're so lucky where we live in Halton. We have amazing farmland. That farmland isn't just growing food that's sustaining us. It's sequestering carbon. That soil sequesters more carbon than uh, than so many other uh, resources. That's a resource. That is something tangible. The minute we start putting uh, sprawling homes is the minute we have problems in our community. It changes our whole ecosystem. It changes our greenhouse gas emissions. And look at climate change. It's here. Like <laughs> I'm just going to ground truth it for a moment. We know it's getting wetter, windier, and wilder, 1,000%. We've been tracking it. We know the impacts. You know, by keeping sprawl happening, all we're doing is amplifying that impact. So boy, oh boy, do we ever have an opportunity in our community to really say together as a community, hard urban boundaries, green development standards, that's our path forward. That's an opportunity. Let's get it done. Yeah, you raised excellent excellent points. Um, there's something that we've, we've had on uh, a few episodes ago we had on uh the 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 director of uh halton conservation on uh to talk about how the the province was rolling back uh the responsibilities of the conservation authorities in uh in, in ontario 
at the same time, we're talking about how the the Minister of uh, Municipal Affairs, uh, Steve Clark, was kind of handing out municipal zoning orders like it was candy. You know, there, there was talk, at the time there was talk about in Pickering transforming wetlands into warehouses, and he was using that. We're here. We're talking about doing a, a regional plan development, but that shadow hangs overhead. You know, we could, the region can say, "Hey, we we want to make." more green space, more parkland. We want to have denser neighborhoods, whatever have you. But at the same time, we have a government who that the minister minister has a longstanding history of just saying, yeah, great. You have a plan. I'm overriding it with my minister, my minister zoning order because I want to put in a warehouse for Amazon or I want to put in a film studio uh, on this land. Uh, what, what do you think? Do, do, does it, do you think that makes the regional plan kind of a pointless endeavor? At that point, or is this something that the, maybe the municipalities need to start fighting back more, uh, more against? Uh, really good question. So, you know, again, the regional official plan, we have to do it. We have to comply with the province full stop. So we don't have, we have to undertake this process and we have to put forward the best path forward for our community. So people do need to be engaged regardless if an MZO is hanging over us or not. You know, by not being part of the conversation, you're not being part of a solution. So, you know, it's time for people to lean in here and get involved in the regional official plan. You know, MZOs are a really slippery slope, and um, it's a huge concern, to be really honest with you. Um, I think that moving forward, I'd really love the province to be more mindful around MZOs and how they're applying them and why they're applying them. And again, it needs to be looked at holistically. Uh, You know, it's just, it's bad policy, it's bad process and and bad bad procedure. And that's just the bottom line. And when a community of citizens come together and say, this is the path we want, we want our community to be uh, complete, we want harder urban boundaries, and and we want a clean and prosperous uh, economy. If, If the residents are saying that, I would hope that all politicians would listen to those residents and make sure that they're amplifying that voice and making sure that that's what's happening in community. In fact, I would say that's almost their responsibility, Joel, wouldn't you? Like, as a politician, shouldn't we be listening to our citizens? And if our citizens are saying, look, at this is our path mm-hmm. forward, we've, we've all been involved in this process in this regional official plan, you know, I would hope that they would reflect on that and be very mindful with what their citizens are saying. I, I also just want to uh, add in one uh, one caveat to my, my previous statement that about MZO, MZOs, there has been talk about using ministerial zoning orders in regards to uh, the Highway 413, there, there, there is, there's talk about doing that, and the, but with the trade-off of oh, we're going to expand Greenbelt, so adding so many acres of Greenbelt north of the existing Greenbelt boundary. That's to me, to me, that's just it. Just shows like you can just shift the Greenbelt. There's nothing stopping us from doing that, building a highway, and then saying, okay, well, let's you know, in another ten years time, okay, let's shift the boundaries a little bit more. And we'll just keep adding until we hit, you know, Lake Lake Superior or Lake Huron uh, on the on the northern part of uh, of the province. That's just my little uh, caveat there. And Joel, you know, if I can speak to that for a second, yeah, you, know, go ahead. The, you know, we do have an environmental assessment currently on the four one three by the federal government. Let's wait and see how that plays out, um, because you know, you can't once you pave over a wetland, you can never ever mm-hmm. regain that ecological benefit. Full stop. Like it's gone. And you can't pick it up and put it somewhere else. That's just not how it works. So, it, it, you know, it, that's really, um, you know, to say, oh, you know, we're just going to move, you know, it's tick, tick for tat. It, it, that's not how ecological processes or systems work. And um, again, we have a lot of really bright people that understand that. So 
I, you know, I, I find that almost offensive when when those conversations occur in community. It's like you know, once you pave over paradise, it's gone. Like full stop. You can't yeah. you can't bring back the land that that had that ecological benefit. Yeah, you can do remediation, but it's just that it's remediation. It never gets back to that ecological value that is not only um, helping our environment, but it's helping us as humans. You know, it, it's and this this, this absurd. This, yeah. And this maddening, maddening to me argument that, oh, well, we'll build on this bit of a green belt and we'll give you another bit. It's like, that's, that's the whole point is that you can't, you know, if you do that, you still lost land forever. Uh, you, you can't, you can't, uh, uh, you know, and I grew up outside London and I was surrounded by, I think it was one of the first green belts in the world, if not the first. Um, and today that green belt, the, the areas that the designated green, green belt in 1970, the year I was born, us exactly the same it's amazing when i looking around here where everything changes so quickly and we're very different countries very very different countries but the the despite all the change that's gone in during 50 years of my lifetime those fields that were farmland in 1970 are the same farm today uh, and that's the point that's the way it has to be if it's going to work and yeah that really has to be a message that people uh, uh, take on board there's one final issue. We're, we're coming right up on our, our time here. Um, one issue I, I wanted to, to dive into, and, and that is um, the shortly after the, the, the last municipal elections, uh, a lot. I'm not sure if every council in, in uh, Halton did it, but certainly Burlington did, certainly Oakville did, um, uh, was to declare a, a climate emergency. Now, which seems like a great thing, you know, and it, I'm very happy they did. Um, do you think, uh, given those declarations, that the cities have subsequently shown that there's real teeth in this, those declarations, that they weren't just kind of window dressing, to, to, to put it bluntly? Uh, or do you think, um, uh, uh, yeah, or do you think it, it was simply window dressing and, and that it doesn't necessarily uh, signify a, a, a great change in, in mentality on, on these municipalities' part? Roland, great question. Um, so Hen was involved in all, uh, I'm happy to report we have six climate emergency declarations in our community. So uh, we have all four lower tier municipalities, the region of Halton, um, as well as we have the Halton District School Board. Uh, we supported the students in the first ever student-led climate emergency declaration. So, you know, we should be proud as a community to declare that we have six climate emergency declarations. How we can apply those declarations and how we can embed change is different per uh, municipality. So uh, I think we're seeing great progress uh, in Oakville, uh, Burlington, uh, and in Halton Hills. Halton Hills is actually leading some incredible transfer transformation, uh, including a retrofit program, uh, the first of its kind in our community. So I think depending on how the municipality wants to apply that climate emergency, it is, you know, they, they have a mechanism now, they have a tool. They didn't have that before. So how they leverage that mechanism or that tool is really up to them. And again, we're seeing some really lean in and we're seeing others that maybe aren't leaning in enough. And we're seeing some with the path forward and we're seeing some that are are just trying to get on the path and trying to mm -hmm. formulate it and try to put that lens on. And I think that's what the climate emergency should do. It should put a lens of climate on everything. Again, economics, uh, economic development, um, complete communities, growth plans, uh, transportation nodes, all of those things, the climate lens should be applied to everything. That's what we could do. And if we do that, if we create that cohesive, uh, holistic uh, path forward, we will prosper. You know, I think Mark Carney, uh, he just 
released a great book. He elevates that conversation to a level in which I could never do, uh, as well as our, our own Treasury Department and the work of, um, of uh, Mr. Zenos. Again, he shows how we can actually embed a climate budget into everything that we're doing. So the true cost of climate is added at the inception. And looking at farmlands or the green belt and actually looking at the true ecological benefits and the carbon mitigation that's that's derived just by having that space, that all needs to be embedded here. Again, those climate emergencies, that, that is a mechanism and a tool that we could really use to create an incredible community for our children and grandchildren. I could ask more questions. Uh, Joel, do you have a uh, final question you want to go with there? No, I, I think I I, I I just want to underscore kind of what you were saying there, uh, Lisa, that and what Roland was saying, that I thought when the, the municipality started declaring climate emergencies, I thought it was a great, bold statement, and I was really proud of it. I've, my take is that the that boldness has turned into a bit more meekness in, in recent years. I, I haven't seen too many municipalities take the steps forward that I would have liked that they showed when making those statements. You know, I like that Holland Hills is talking about a retrofit, but you know, I, I'm surprised like there's no urgency to retrofit existing municipal infrastructure, community centers, hockey arenas, that kind of thing to to make them more environmentally sustainable or, or carbon neutral. They're, or, they're doing that actually, Joel. I have to step in right there. So we're seeing many oh. community centers actually doing that. We're seeing um, actually the the corporate energy plans out of most municipalities. All of the municipalities actually in our community are really being advanced. So, so those things are actually happening, just to let you know. We are seeing uh, that embedded right now. So I, I just, sorry to stop you right there, but just to let you know, there's many community centers now and uh, a lot of electrification of, of uh, fleet vehicles for our municipalities now. And I, I think just, just to be really, I think one thing we have, to, we have to acknowledge is, you know, we've been in the middle of a pandemic. Do I wish that we've made more advances on climate? 1,000%. 1,000%. It's, you know, the clock's ticking. We don't have much time. In fact, we're, we're out of some time here. But, you know, we've been thrusted into this COVID world. And, you know, I think our, our municipalities have done a very good job keeping us safe and sound. Um, but now to keep us safe and sound, now with COVID and the vaccines being rolled out, it's now time to put climate back on uh, the level of urgency, and we all need to advance the, the climate action plans, and we need to advance um, our climate inventories. We need to really measure, track, and then start mitigating. That's what we need to do. We're at the we're let's track it, let's measure it, let's implement the change. That's where we're at, and let's put the same urgency that we put on COVID onto climate. No, that I, is, a, is a is an excellent. That's uh, what I was going to say. <laughs> I think I think we're going to end off on that. Well, that's a high note. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so th- thanks so much, uh, Lisa Kohler, for for joining us today. Uh, really enjoyed this conversation, and um, uh, and all the very best with all those future things that we hope uh, will come uh, very soon from from all levels of government, not just in Halton, but um, across the nine hundred five and across Canada. So thanks so much. Thanks, Joel. Thanks, Roland, for the opportunity. I really enjoyed the conversation today. So thanks so much. That's it for this episode of the 905er. Thank you for listening. As always, you can send us your feedback, thoughts, and concerns, or ideas for future episodes to our email, info at 905er.ca. We'd love to hear from you. 
You can help us keep the 905er going by financially supporting us through Patreon as well as PayPal. Visit us at 905er.ca and click on the support tab. As well, links are in the show notes for your convenience. Lastly, you can find us on social media. Search for the underscore 905er on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. So long for now. See you next time. the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favourite podcast app.